Take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. While you're turning there, I want to remind you that uh, ever since COVID, way back in 2020, that uh, we have not passed the plate around like we used to for an offering, but it's still part of our worship. So I want to remind everybody of, of our tithes and offering box out there to continue the support of our church and ministry. And so just want to remind you uh, of that. Hebrews chapter 10. This morning we are going to uh, look at verse 26 to the end of the chapter in honor of God's word. Uh, these, this, this group over here is already ahead of me. So the rest of you up on your feet. Hebrews chapter 10 in honor of God's word. Let's stand together. Let's read the passage. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when you were enlightened you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those who were so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. For we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask now, Lord, that you would guide us, uh, that you would teach us, Holy Spirit, that you would uh, convict us where we need to be convicted, encourage us in the places that we need to have, have courage poured back into us. Father, help us to see ourselves honestly in light of your word. Father, your word is, is a sword that pierces sometimes. And uh, this is, seems to be one of those passages that, that, that pierces us. And so I, I, I pray, Father, that we know that uh, more than a sword in your hand that is trying to destroy, it's more like a, a surgical scalpel that's trying to heal. And so I, I pray, Father, give us, give us the words as they were intended to be as healing for our souls. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come now in the book of Hebrews to the last of the warning passages. There are five in all, and uh, these warning passages, one of the reasons that, that uh, I struggled with going ahead and diving into the book of Hebrews were those five warning passages, because they are truly difficult to teach and preach through, and here we are again with another difficult text, but at the same time, I've discovered that these passages really serve us well in helping us understand the purpose of the book. Uh, here, in this last of the warning passages, we see truly clearly uh, what has been suggested all along through the last 10 chapters, and that's this, that the writer of Hebrews is, is addressed to a people whose love for Jesus has grown cold. 
And it didn't happen overnight. It's been a slow erosion, a slow process that has taken their once fiery passion for Jesus and has allowed it to, to cool off. Ah, thank you, Judy. You saw me looking and saw that look of panic on my face, like, oh, I want to choke through this one. So they're going through this, this slow, slow process of, of waking up one day and discovering that the fire in their hearts has gone out. Let me show you what I mean. Uh, verse 32. We're going to look at this passage. We're kind of going to study it backwards. I think it helps us to make more sense. Uh, verse 32 says, Recall the former days. When you were enlightened and you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated, and you had compassion on those in prison and you fully, joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So here we find this, this group of these 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 crazy Christians in love with Jesus and they're filled with fire for his mission and they have this incredible love for one another. They are joyfully paying the cost of following Jesus. Basically what's happening is their friends are being thrown in prison for following Jesus. And back in that day, I mean, prisons were not exactly places that took care of their prisoners. And so if, if you had a friend or a neighbor or, or a loved one in prison, uh, you would have to bring them food. You would have to bring them blankets when it was cold. You, know, you see that from the writings of the Apostle Paul when he's like, bring me, bring me some of the things that I need. And he, he wanted his books. And so uh, that's kind of how it worked back then. And so these Christians, these people, if it was our church, let's say, you know, a handful of you guys ended up in prison and the rest of us decided, you know, we need to take them food and, and things, essential things that they need. Now, there's a problem with that. The problem is as soon as we show up at the prison with these essential needs for our friends, guess what? We have now been exposed as being part of the clan, right? We are also now uh, labeled as those Christians. And so now we're in trouble. Now, now we're risking uh, so much. In fact, it says that what they were risking is their property... Uh, their, their livelihood, their homes being confiscated. You just, you know, you go, you, you try to do a good thing, you help somebody out, help a brother out, and uh, it, it's going to cost you dearly. Now imagine it's something like this. Imagine, imagine that you are out canvassing the neighborhood, uh, I don't know, let's say Wednesday night, because that's what we're doing Wednesday night, and, and you're... You're out canvassing this neighborhood around us and you're inviting these neighbors to, to come to church on Easter. And you're just going, man, this is awesome. And, and, and then you go home, right? You come back to the church, have some ice cream, and then you head home. You get home and there's this yellow label on your front door and your key no longer works. And on that yellow label, it says, this property belongs to the county. And you're going, what are you, what are you talking about? And you can't get into your own house anymore because it doesn't belong to you anymore. And you discover that you have been considered as involved in illegal activities. And because you have been involved in illegal activities by representing Jesus out loud to the community... Uh, the county's decided that they now are just going to take your, your stuff. You're going, my dog's in there. All my stuff's in there. I got pictures in there. And you're not able to get into your own house. 
Now let me ask you this. If you knew that that was a real possibility, would you show up Wednesday night? Well, these people did. They knew the risk that was involved. And so, yeah, they, they, they showed up. They said, love over possessions. Uh, it's just stuff. You, you can't take it with you. Uh, especially where we're going, right? Who, who needs that stuff? Where we're going, you know, they use gold to pave the streets. What good is our junk, right? And besides that, besides all of that, our suffering for Jesus brings God uh, more glory. And so bring it on. We, we can't lose. We care more about God's glory and our joy in bringing God glory than all of this stuff, this temporary stuff that we obtain in this short momentary life. We have Jesus, a much better possession and an abiding one. And so uh, I find it rather uh, convicting that the, the measurement of the height of their walk with Christ was when they were suffering. That's, that's when they, it seems that they were most alive, right? Most convinced of the worthiness of Christ that they would suffer for his name. And, and that little word in there, joyfully, that when they got home and the sticker was on the front door that said your property's been confiscated, they were like, that's awesome. But who does that? Well, it's, it's interesting because the writer of Hebrews tells the people that he's writing to, remember those days? Uh, I want you to recall those days which is another way of saying that you're not doing any of that anymore. Things have changed. You, you no longer find the confiscation of your property joyful. In fact, you're doing everything to avoid it. And so somehow these, these radical white-hot Christians have grown incredibly cold in their faith. In fact, they've grown cold, so cold that they are on the verge of abandoning their faith altogether. And guess why? Precisely because of the suffering that's bringing them. So once upon a time, right, that suffering, they saw it as an opportunity to bring God glory and to experience joy. And now they see it as something to completely avoid altogether. And in fact, to do whatever is necessary to make it stop, even if that means walking away from Jesus. How in the world did they go from, from one extreme to the other? It's not really a, a, an uncommon problem among Christians. Is the temptation uh, for us in our day just as much as it was uh, a part of temptation for their day, even though we are not experiencing the same level of persecution, the reality is, is, is that we too often deal with the fact that our hearts, which used to be so on fire for God, uh, seem to drift away and, and no longer have that, that passion that we once had. And we find that not only, you know, in our, in our own lives, but it, it, one of the things I think that's helpful is we actually see it uh, true from the beginning in the scriptures themselves. The church in Ephesus, for example. Re uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 4. You, you might recall this when we studied the book of Revelation. Jesus says to the church, but I have this against you, you have abandoned the love you had at first. You have abandoned it. The love you had at first, the fire, the passion, the love, you've walked away from that. Jesus also warned that in the last days, he said that the love of most will grow cold. 
you know, I've heard that phrase, I've, I've quoted that phrase, but it really just kind of occurred to me that Jesus said that it will grow cold. Which means that it wasn't always cold. It, it, it's something that has happened to them. It's, it's something that in the last days, and we see that in the last days, that things get really dark and things get really difficult and all of these trials come. And because of those things, their love is growing cold, which means that at one time it used to, to not be cold. It had to grow that way. Paul's letter to Timothy uh, another example, it's kind of similar to the book of Hebrews. Paul knows that his, his apprentice, Timothy, is, is growing timid in his faith. He is the pastor of the church in Ephesus, by the way, which had abandoned their first love. And so the pastor is himself, he's growing timid in his faith. And so what does he say? Well, he, he says this in his last, the last letter that, it, that the Apostle Paul ever wrote, 2 Timothy chapter 1, 6-7, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Remember that? Remember where you used to be? What happened? For God gave us a spirit not of fear but of power and love and self-control. So he's, he's looking at Timothy and he's going, Man, you remember... When, when you first started your, your call to ministry and we laid our hands on you and you were, man, you were on fire, what happened to you? Where have you grown that now fear is the power over you? What happened? I need you to do whatever it takes to, to rekindle that flame, to fan it. Because what used to be a roaring fire is just now just some embers. Got to fan it back up. So there's no doubt it happens to the best of us. But the question that I have is, is how does it happen? How does our love for, for Jesus go from, from such extremes, from, from white hot to ice cold? And perhaps you're there right now. Perhaps your, your love for Jesus has it's cooled considerably than when you first believed. And maybe you don't even really know why. It's like, man, I just can't really put my finger on it. Well, for some people, uh, it's, a, it's an easy answer. For some people, they can point to a crisis of faith that came along in their lives, you know, and, and something that took place or maybe some moment when their faith was was their child trust in Jesus was really shaken. Perhaps a trauma or, or something that challenged your whole system of belief. And coldness comes in kind of like a blue northern overnight. You're like going, man, I was just so on fire for Jesus. This took place. I can't explain why. I don't know why God let that happen to me. But ever since, man, I just, I've been struggling. That might be the case, but I, I really think that for most of us, coldness really kind of eases in. It, it, it's, more, it's more gradual, right? It's like, it's like a cup of coffee that you forget about, and it was so good and hot, and, and then you take a swig, and you're like, oh, that's awful, what happened? It, it's like a slow erosion that happens over time, right? So how does that happen? How do we allow that to happen? Well, well last week, uh, here in the book of Hebrews, we saw three gospel applications. We call them invitations uh, that we looked at last week. And I think that that's the answer uh, to our question as well. Remember he said, since we have uh, confidence be able to enter into the presence of God, into the Holy of Holies, by the blood of Christ. And secondly, since we still have Jesus as our high priest, who is interceding for us, let us, and then he mentions three things, let us do three things. And I think those three things are, are essential to answer the question of how this happens, that our hearts grow cold. Because 
we seem to fail at one or all three of these things. We're called to do these things. Let us do these things. But if we stop doing them, well, then it seems to go with the context, the flow of the passage. What were those three things? The first one is, let us draw near. Let us draw near. Well, if you're not constantly drawing near to God, then your heart begins to, to cool towards God. right? And, and I'm talking about just spending regular time with Him in, in prayer and, and studying the Bible. And you remember, I think we all remember that excitement, that energy we used to have, especially when we were first saved. We're like, man, I just love the Bible and, and, and prayer, and it's just so new and it's exciting. And, and then your, your faith loses that new car smell, you know? And over time, it's just like, man, I just, I've read this thing. I, I know it. Well, you can never know it uh, well enough. And the fact is, it's not about knowing it. It's about knowing Jesus. And so if we, we neglect drawing near to him, Christ has, has suffered, died in order to open the door that we can draw near to him but if we don't do it uh, it's kind of like just a, a circular pattern right our, our hearts start to grow cold and the the cooler our hearts become the less desire we have to do it it's a vicious cycle secondly he says uh, let us hold fast verse 23 to our confession the confession of our hope that has to do with our, our public confession, profession of Christ. Nothing will ignite your passion for Jesus like speaking and telling people about Jesus and what he's done for you. Sharing your confession, your profession of faith, being on mission for Jesus. Nothing will quench it like withdrawing from that. Having no mission, having no confession of your faith out there. No professing Christ in your neighborhoods and in your home and in your workplace. Thirdly, he says, let us stir one another up to love and good deeds, right? Well, if you become isolated from God's people, if you shut off that fellowship, if you make a habit of not meeting together, as he says, that's a sure way to extinguish the fire. And I think all three of these things go into that. And again, it's a vicious cycle. And so you begin to, your heart begins to cool because you're not doing these things regularly. And then you do them less and less and less. And you become cooler and cooler and cooler. And so what do we do? Communion, confession, community. That's what those three things consist of. They are your spiritual life. They are to your spiritual life what oxygen, heat, and fuel are to a fire. All necessary. And, and when I think about that list and I look at my own life, I say, yep, yep, that's certainly been true for me. I, I can point to any one of those things when I'm going through the motion spiritually and say, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really kind of failing here. Uh, I've let that slip in my life. And it's always really a hard issue, isn't it? Because I can know in my head these things are true, but it's the heart that's the real issue. Just knowing it doesn't necessarily convince my heart. And so the engine room of, of our faith is the heart. That's what the Bible refers to as the heart. And we need to understand that, that term, especially as it's, as it's uh, revealed in the scripture. Uh, we're told to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, and with all of our mind, and all of our strength. And so we look at that list and we go, well, heart, that's the emotions, and mind, that's, you know, how you think, and, and strength, that's obviously physical. So that's you know, love God with, with all your being. Well, the thing is, is that a heart drives all the rest of it. 
The heart in the Bible is more than just the emotions. Uh, the heart, I think the best way to understand the heart is, is it reveals what you are trusting in. Proverbs 3, 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Those things go together. They're not separate. Your, your trusting reveals your heart. And secondly, it has to do with what you treasure. Your heart reveals your, your treasure, what you're hoping in, what you value the most. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, there's your heart. And so it's not just simply about emotions, it's about what you're trusting in, what, what you are treasuring above everything else. That's the heart. And those things go hand in hand, trusting and treasuring. So for trusting in or, or treasuring in, let's say, money, um, or approval from other people, or success in life, uh, then uh, what we're trusting in is going to obviously reveal what we're treasuring. And what we're treasuring is then going to determine how we think, how we feel about certain things, physically what we do to gain those things. So sin is basically disordered love that comes from a disordered heart. So what's the solution here? Well, the solution is to reorder our hearts back to Christ. How do we do that? Well, first of all, uh, we need to decide. We must decide to be a thermostat Christian instead of a thermometer Christian. What am I talking about? Well, think about a thermometer. What does a thermometer do? It measures the environment around it, right? So a thermometer Christian is one who allows this, the surrounding environment to determine its movement. The mercury moves up and down based on the circumstances of the atmosphere. So uh, what we talked about last week is, is the ethos. Right? It, it is influenced, being influenced by its surroundings. Its surroundings are influencing you, the thermometer. By contrast, there is the thermostat Christian which sets the temperature of those around us. Do you guys, if it's just in my house, does anybody have the, the thermostat battles? My goodness, my, my house would be like uh, 12 degrees in there. You know, I'm like shivering. I'm going, it's freezing in here. And you know, it's, oh, no, it's not. It's hot. What are you talking about? It's like, how can we be, how can you say it's hot when it's, and I always go to the thermostat itself and I point at the temperature. It's 64 degrees in here. That's cold. And I always tell my daughter, when you want to pay the electric bill, then you can set that thing. Well, the thermostat, the thermostat sets the temperature. It's not influenced by the temperature around it unless the temperature is set to a certain point and then which it comes on automatically, right? The thermostat is influencing the surroundings. It's the one determining the temperature, what the temperature is going to be. It's not just simply measuring what the temperature is. So a thermometer Christian is, is the one who just kind of lets life happen to you. Right? The thermostat Christian makes life happen. The thermometer Christian makes excuses. The thermostat Christian is the one who gets results, who makes things happen. Now, there is much danger associated with a cold heart uh, to the point that a cold heart left untreated uh, gets to the point where, where these Christians have become to the point of actually being tempted to fall away. A cold heart 
is, is never prepared to stand joyfully in the midst of the trials. When their heart was on fire, they were able to say, man, bring it on. I will joyfully accept the confiscation of my property because Jesus is greater. Now that their hearts have grown cold because they've neglected their faith, the same trials come and they're like going, Phew, I'm out. Forget this. What in the world? So, so your heart, basically, if you let it grow cold, then you become more of the thermometer, right? Because your circumstances are now dictating to you. But if you're, you know, you're, you're on fire for the Lord, you're the thermostat, you're going, I don't care what's happening around me. This is where I stand. Nothing I'm going to allow around me is going to determine my heart's passion for Jesus. You see the difference? So these people have, have shifted, not just simply based on what's happened to them, but what's happened within them. So the, the passionate heart faces adversity with determination and resolve. The cold heart is ready to throw in the towel. And over time, the cold heart becomes cynical and, well, apathetic. So the writer here of Hebrews is what I would call a, a thermostat Christian. And what he's fixing to do in this letter is he's fixing to turn the heat up on them. Notice what he does. Verses 26, beginning of verse 26. So if we go on sinning desperately, uh, deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse then do you think will be the deserved by the one who's trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. Let me, let me paraphrase what he just said. Look, you, you people are flirting with disaster. That's what he says. He's saying your hearts have grown so cold that you're actually considering walking away from Jesus and going back to the law. And so he's saying, may I remind you that Jesus was your shelter, right? Your shelter from what? Your shelter from God, from his wrath. And, and so if you, if you leave the shelter, where does that leave you? It, it leaves you right back into the wrath of God. So apparently a cold heart can, can make you, because everything, it's, the, it's the, the seed of your thinking, right? So the, their cold heart is causing them to really think unclearly right now. The heart controls the mind. It controls not just the emotions, but the mind. And, and so remember that the heart is what you trust and what you treasure. So instead of trusting and treasuring Jesus, they are about to trust in their own salvation project. Uh, they, they, their, their treasure is not Jesus, but their comfort, not Christ. Their loves have become disordered. And so they're going, you are under the wrath of God. Right? People don't like to talk about the wrath of God anymore. You're under the wrath of God. Uh, then you turn to Jesus, you were saved from the wrath of God. So let me get this straight. Now you want to go back? Because that makes sense. And so that's why he says, if you go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. He's not saying that. You've got to put it in context. He's not saying that if you keep sinning, you're going to lose your salvation. He's saying that by deliberately sinning, the sin that he's speaking of is apostasy. He goes, if, if you go back, you know, there's nothing left. There's no sacrifice for sins. What, are you going to sacrifice animals now? Because that never worked. 
What are you going to do? You're now under the wrath of God all over again. Like I said, people don't like to talk about the wrath of God. Uh, we like our, our version of, of God to be uh, all love, no wrath. Right? We want God to be nice. We want a, a nice God because a nice God we can control and we can feel cozy with. Even when we're cold-hearted, we can be like, well, you know, God's okay with it. But what we find here is a very different thing. It's like, oh, you are, you are toying with something very dangerous right now. The wrath of God in the scriptures is not just a sign of his, his anger. It's a sign of how much he cares. If you take away the wrath of God, go, man, we just want a God of love. We don't want a God of wrath. Then why would you need a cross? The cross would make no sense. What are you being saved from? My sins. Well, what about your sins? Why is your sin a problem? Your sin is a problem because your sin has separated you from a whole God. And you were under his wrath, but he has rescued you from that. The cross makes no sense without the wrath of God. And the wrath of God is, is a sign of just how much he cares what has happened to you and what has happened to his world. If, if he didn't love us, right, he wouldn't warn us to flee his wrath. So the warning here doesn't require a Ph.D. in theology to comprehend. God saves us from his wrath by sending his son to bear his wrath in our place. And you want to leave that. It's similar to being rescued from a burning house. And then all of a sudden you decide you're going to go rushing back in to the burning house. And the writer of Hebrews is going, what am I going to do for you then? You were rescued, and now you're back. So instead of facing the unquenchable wrath of God, he says, we can approach God with confidence. Let us draw near to God. Let us, we have been cleansed with Christ. Jesus is a shelter from the fire, from the storm, from the anger that God has towards our sins. We've been rescued from that burning house. Why in the world are you considering going back in? There's no rescue that remains after that. And so that's what's at stake here. If you go on sinning deliberately after you've been saved by apostasy, there's nothing... It's not that you're, you're walking away from your salvation that you've lost. It's basically demonstrating a salvation you actually never possessed. Because nobody in their right mind is going to do that. Now we have to understand uh, all of this in its context. You know, that's a, he, he says some, some profound things. He says, you have profaned the blood of Christ. It's like you have trampled Jesus under your foot. And that's, that's such a stark image, isn't it? Uh, in my mind, uh, what I picture is, is these Christians, and there's the fire, the, the house is on fire, which is, is called Judaism, that they've run out of, that they've been rescued from, and now they're in, in the kingdom, and they're going... I think we want back in the fire. And Jesus is like standing at the door. And they are so desperate that they're going to run over Jesus, stomp on him in order to get past him back to the fire. That's the, the imagery I see here. That you have profaned his blood. And then one of the most uh, fascinating verses and scary verses in the text it says you have outraged the spirit of grace how do you <laughs> the spirit of grace how do you outrage the spirit it's like how do you turn a dove 
into a hawk. Well, I'll tell you how you trample on the Son of God. And all of a sudden, the sweet dove of the Spirit is not such a sweet dove anymore. That you have outraged the Spirit of grace. You've treated his blood like it was not enough. It wasn't good enough. You've treated his blood, you've looked at his blood, you've tasted it, you have been sanctified by it, which means that you've tasted everything that you've been a part of, being a part of this for a time. You once were radical, and now you've experienced this blood, and, and you're coming to this point of going, you know, there's just better offers out there. Better offers in the world, better promises and now your, your, your once white heart, white hot heart has turned cold because you are no longer trusting and treasuring Christ. And so as, as, as terrifying as the prospect of falling away is in this passage, and, and, and he's using this, this imagery, I mean, he's using it on purpose. He's going, okay, what you're, what you're thinking is devastating. He's not just like going, ah, man, I know it's hard, so just kind of buck up and we'll be here for you. No, he's like going, you don't understand what you're about to do. Because if you go back, there's no coming. There's no turning this thing around. There, there is um, hope in this passage. It, it, it's a warning passage, but I read the passage and I go, oh my goodness, it's such a beautiful passage. He, he's, he's offering to them hope. Hope remains alive for these people. In other words, they're, they're, they haven't crossed the threshold yet to head back to the fiery house, right? They're still contemplating. He's going, okay, let's think. Let's reason together. Let's think about if there was no hope remaining, what would be the point of the warning passage? If there was no hope, there would be no sense in warning somebody. It would be the same as, you know, it would be like someone who fell off a cliff and you run to the bottom of the cliff and you go, hey, uh, there's a sign up there that says watch your step. I mean, it would be ridiculous to have a warning passage if there was no hope. So there, there's this way back to the joys of loving Jesus, there is a way to rekindle your fire. There's hope. The things that energized you in the past can energize you once again. There's, there's a way to become a thermostat and determine the temperature instead of being a thermometer and simply uh, allowing your circumstances to adjust temperature. So what is the way? What is the way? Well, I want you to listen to what Jesus said to the Ephesian church that had lost its first love. This is, this is beautiful. You want to hear it from Jesus the way back. I know your works, your toil, the word toil there, the Greek means to, to work to the point of exhaustion. I know your works, I know your toil and your patient endurance. I know how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know that you're enduring patiently, bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Isn't that awesome? I mean, you're working so hard. You're working to the point of exhaustion, but you still keep going. You still keep going. You still show up. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Apparently, you can be incredibly busy for Jesus and not love him. Because these people are, are they're, they're, they are tireless workers. I mean, they're working, they're toiling. 
It says, uh, not only are they, they hard workers, but they're hard thinkers, right? They, they see all of this, this uh, false teaching that have come into the church, and, and they're sharp enough with their theology to go, uh, I don't think so. I don't think those people are, that's false. That's not scripture. We're going to deal with that. They're courageous enough to deal with it. They have courage. They have intelligence. They have a credible work ethic. They just don't love Jesus. Not anymore. You abandoned your first love. You abandoned it. So what is the solution? Remember. Remember from where you have fallen. Remember where you used to be. Remember how you used to feel. And repent. And then go back there and do the works you did back then. I want you to think about that. What does that mean? Right, what is the solution? Do the works you did at first. Right? I want you to... You go, well, now, okay, what did I used to do back then? What are the works? What are the works? Well, let me tell you what. He's not telling them to, to work harder. He's not saying, okay, what you need to do to rekindle your heart is you need to start working harder. You need to do this. You need No. They are working to the point of exhaustion already. Right? Work is not their issue. Toiling and doing more is not the issue. He's not saying you need to study harder. Well, what you need to do is you, you need to read through Grudem's systematic theology. That'll fire you up. I mean, these guys are incredible. These guys are like, you know, they hear a false teaching. They're like, poo, that's false. They are enduring patiently. They bear up for his namesake. They're not growing weary. So it's not about doing more. So when he says do the works, he's not saying work harder. We then have to ask the question, well, what are the works? What are the works you do at the beginning? Well, John 6.29 tells us Jesus says this. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Remember when you... Back then, when it was all about, you, you came to the realization that it was never about your works. You remember when you first believed? You remember when you, you discovered grace? And it just blew you away? And you're like, this can't be real. Go back there. Go back to that place. Go back to the place of trust. Because... That's where your heart's going to go. Go back to the place when you treasured Christ because where your heart is, there your treasure is. So if you're treasuring Christ, your heart's going to go there. Go back to that, remember? Go back to the place when Christ was like that treasure you found. I love the parable about the guy who's like, you know, walking by and he finds this treasure in a field. He doesn't rip it off. Uh, he says, okay, I'll just cover that back up and uh, do to do And then he goes and he buys the field. And then he goes back to the field and he's like, huh, look what's in my field. You know, this treasure. And it says that he joyfully sold all of his stuff in order to gain the field because all of his stuff was no longer worthy of his heart. It no longer was his treasure. He found a greater treasure. It's like, go back to that. Go back to when Jesus was your greatest treasure. Not your job. Not possessions. Not money. Not your career path. Jesus. Remember that? I love that passage, right? And it's not like... It's not like in the passage, you know, that Jesus, he doesn't give them a second chance. You've heard it said that God is the God of the second chance. No, he's not. God does not give us second chances or third chances or fourth chances. Because here's the reality. 
God can give you a million chances, and you will fail every time. God is not the God of the second chance. God is the God of the new life. He gives you new life, not chances. Chances puts it on me. Oh, i gotta, I got to buck it up. i got to try harder. No. I just got to rest. I got I to get back to that place of treasuring Jesus and his grace. Right? The Bible says, John says, 1 John 4, 19 says, we love, why? Because he first loved us. You see, we love because it's his love that helps us to love again. And when we, we, we get away from that, then we, then we lose sight of that. Then, obviously, we stop loving him and others. Right? So he doesn't say work harder. They're already doing that. No, he says, he says, do the things you did at first. Go back to the place when you realize that Jesus loved you in spite of you. Despite of your lack of love for him, he still loved you anyway. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us and gave his life to us as a ransom. Start there. Go back to the point when you came to the realization that you love Jesus more than your sin. And now by comparison, you hate your sin. Remember that. Repent again. That was called repentance. Go back there. Go back to that place. Remember when you embrace Jesus as your Lord and Savior. The, the work of God is to believe in Jesus. That's, that's the love that drove them at first. That's the love that was better than any possession or property and any comfort. It was at that place when they were able to say, I don't care about any of this stuff. I have Jesus. He's all I need. You can throw me in your prison. You can take away my stuff. You can't take Jesus from me. Remember that? Recall that? He's like going, you just have to go back to where that was your treasure. Because here's the big picture, right? Here's the thing. Soon we will see him face to face. Soon the desire of our heart is going to be realized. So here's his argument. He's going, all right, because... Here's the thing, if, if you go back into the fire, there's, there's no more rescue for you. And, and just a heads up, this time, I know you're suffering, but this time that you're in right now, it is so momentary compared to what's coming. Look at what he says, verse 35. Don't throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance. you got to hang in there so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come, and he will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul's going to have no pleasure in him, but we are not of those who shrink back. We're not of those who shrink back. Come on, guys. We are, we are not destroyed by that. We are those who live by faith and who preserve our souls. So don't throw away your confidence in Jesus. Don't throw away your, your salvation. Don't throw away your confidence in your salvation. Don't throw away your confidence in his mission, in his church. In, in this day and age, people are losing confidence in everything. Right? From, from leaders to the government and even the church. Everybody's losing their confidence in everything. But our confidence according to this passage, is to be in Jesus, not in any man, not in any system, not in any organization. Our confidence is in Jesus because Jesus, he will never let us down. He says, there's a great reward in keeping your confidence in him. Look to him. Our, 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 Our trials and hardships are a drop in the ocean compared to the reward that's coming. And until we have it, right, until that day comes, and it's right here on the cusp, the righteous ones in that in-between time are going to live by faith. Live by faith. Live by faith. When everything's coming against you, faith. Faith that says there's more, there's greater, he's greater. I uh, was 
scanning through the internet this week and I came across a video clip. And the video clip um, was a video that had been taken from a busy street in, in Manhattan. And the crazy thing is that it was, was filmed like in the 30s, right, the third, 1930s. And, and they have this, this thing that, that people are able to do where they can take all these old black and white things and, and turn them and make them color. So it looks, well, it looks like this. There's no sound to it. Don't get too excited. So there you go, 1930, Manhattan. I know several things. One of my favorite is the paper boy who will show up. There he is. The paper boy. And people are going to come, businessmen hand them their nickel, <laughs> take their paper. I know several things about this video. Uh, one is how everybody dressed. I thought, how cool, everybody wore suits and hats, right? Can we get back to that? I just think that's the coolest thing. I want to get back to that day. And then this occurred to me. Every person in that video is dead. Every one of them. I crank, maybe you were there, but uh, <laughs> everybody else, everyone, unless you know you were like two years old, and I don't see any two-year-olds. Every one of these people are dead, and what are they doing in that moment? They're rushing to work. They're so busy. They're busy making money. They're busy making things happen. They're focused on the news of the day that's so important and every one of them are dead and, and I think to myself you know we all have that season right we're all here at that time just for that little bit of time and we're busy and we're doing our thing and we're so focused on the news of the day I mean, there's some kids but, but then maybe you know when we see everything from heaven's perspective, this time and our time is a flash. It's just a moment. And soon he's going to come. That's good, Tom. I don't know where it goes from here. <laughs> and so, man, there's just a hundred years from now, a hundred years from now, None of us are going to be here. That doesn't mean we'll be dead, dead. It means that 100 years from now, we will either be with Christ in paradise, in glory, or we will be under his everlasting judgment. 100 years from now, we will be in eternity. And those who live by faith are the ones who will be with Jesus. And everything that you deal with right now is going to be temporary. So temporary. All the things that you think this is the most important thing right now. And, and my faith is being decided right now. Maybe you should maybe look ahead a little bit. And consider where everything's going and where we're going. Because it seems rather ridiculous in the light of the reality that in a hundred years we will be in eternity to allow the circumstances of today to determine our temperature. It seems best to be a thermostat and say, no, I'm going to set myself right here white hot for Christ because he's coming soon. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you for your love. We thank you, Father, for the fact that uh, you're coming again. And, uh, and Father, that, that, that this life, this temporary, momentary season that we all are living in, whatever trials that we have, whatever troubles that we face, 
uh, they will seem pretty small then. It doesn't mean that they don't matter now. It just means that we need to put them in perspective. Because when we allow those things to, to pull our hearts away from you, and we begin to trust and treasure in, in, in things getting fixed or things uh, being different instead of Christ, then we, we begin to just lose hope and lose trust and lose our treasure. But Father, there's a, there's a way back, and it's through the same way that we came in the first place, and that's through faith faith in Christ, to renew that faith, to restore, to go back to that place where we hated our sin and we loved Jesus and we treasured grace above everything else and maybe we were a bit naive and, and a bit overzealous, but the fact of the matter is is we, we, sure, we sure had a heart for you then. So I pray God, take us, take us there. And how much more profound through years of, of maturity and growth would it be to go back to that place and have all that knowledge and experience to add to it? So I pray, Father, help us to, to, uh, to put aside uh, our thermostat that's measuring everything around us and help us to determine to set the temperature for ourselves. I ask this in Jesus' name.